It is good to be here with you today. Um, I want to thank all of those who prayed for me. On Wednesday nights, I called Pastor Kyle and thought I might have fever. I didn't know if I was going to be able to come. And at that point, I know that through all kinds of chaos and everybody's plan, I wasn't meaning to be that kind of a um, chaotic feature in your plans this weekend, but the, the Lord had, Lord gave me the fever. Um, I got on antibiotics, you prayed, and I'm here. So praise the Lord for that. Well, we'll see if you praise the Lord after I'm done preaching, but... Um, I'm here nevertheless. Also, on behalf of Indiana, I just want to say thank you, Iowa, for the way that you handled the Iowa caucuses. Way to go. <laughs> you set a good example for the rest of us. Um, we have only a ways to go but up on that, so thank you for that. The last song that we were singing, You're the Sole Desire of My Hearts, I wish that was the case all the time. If you examine your hearts, Sometimes we want other things more than God, and um, that's what we're going to be looking at today. One of my favorite musicals is the Disney Broadway musical called Newsies. Has anybody seen that, Newsies? Okay, a few of you. Okay, in the musical, the main character, Jack Kelly, is a newsie and who spends his days in New York City selling newspapers under the oppressive child labor conditions at the turn of the 20th century. Jack Kelly, fed up with the grit and grime and oppression of the big city, dreams about leaving to a new town out west called Santa Fe that captures his heart. There's a picture um, of him singing. One of the lyrics to his song, the classic song Santa Fe, is this. They say, folks is dying to get here. He's referring to New York City. Me, I'm dying to get away to a little town out west that's spanking new. And while I can't ever, while I never been there, I can see it clear as day. If you want, I bet you, you could see it too. Close your eyes, come with me where it's clean and green and pretty. Sounds like, sounds like Iowa here. <laughs> um, and they went and made a city out of clay. While the minute that you get there, folks will walk up right and say, welcome home, son, welcome home to Santa Fe. Part of the tension of the movie is the constant pull of Jack's heart to run away to Santa Fe um, during, that, during the unexpected battle that ensues when the newsies go on strike and begin to force the issue of the child labor practices. At the end of the movie, the child labor practices are exposed, the newsies get a fair deal, but the question remains, will Jack Kelly stay with his friends in the grit and the grime of New York City? Will his desires for Santa Fe draw him away? What compels him to stay, however, is that his heart was captured by a greater delight, a greater desire than Santa Fe. It was the female journalist that helped the newsies seize the day. Jack Kelly stayed in New York City. What changed Jack Kelly's heart's desires from chasing after Santa Fe was a greater desire, his delight in a relationship. And there's a picture of him with his, his girlfriend. That musical is an inspiration on a number of level, levers, levels. Um, if you, um, it is a wholesome movie. Um, I know not every movie is today, but um, I think you could have watched that one with a clean conscience for the most part. But it nails the theme of what changes the heart. How do we begin to change our desires? I don't know if you've ever thought about that question. Okay, how do we begin to change our desires? You know, it's a movie, but this dynamic also regularly plays out in life as well. For most of our min my ministry, I have been involved with ministering to college students. And there was a common thread when we saw 
um, a normal established behavior of a male, a college student, who was enamored by video games and athletics, but suddenly his, his demeanor and his behavior changed from what I was used to seeing. And then I would turn to my wife and I would say, what happened to this guy? And she would inevitably tell me he's dating somebody now. Um, so he would start serving because guess what? Who else is serving? The lady. So his heart's desire changed from the video games to something greater. His heart was captured by a greater affection. So how do we begin to change our desires of our hearts? Okay, so you may desire to be right. Um, and that's, you know, that's why you get into fights with your boss or your wife. But how do I really want to be humble, a greater desire? You may desire to live for sexual pleasure. But how do I have a greater desire to see my spouse's sexual pleasure? You may desire to live for acceptance. I just want the praise of people. But how do I see that the love of people is a better desire than you accepting me? Maybe you desire to live for earthly security. But how do I see that ultimately giving is better than receiving? With those thoughts in mind, please turn to Psalm 16. And today I want to talk to you about a transformed heart. So Psalm 16, the transformed heart. Let me set up Psalm 16 for you. <coughs> and if I break out in a coughing fit up here, know that I'm not dying. I just have a little touch of bronchitis. And um, as I said, I'm on antibiotics, so I'm not contagious, or at least I don't think. So folks in the front row, I'm sorry for you guys if I spit on you or something, but... Um, I am on antibiotics. I took my last pill this morning, so hopefully I'm all, all done with uh, being contagious. Psalm 16 gives us a picture of what a heart that has been transformed and captivated by a greater desire looks like. So this is the kind of heart that gives you stability in the face of the greatest trials of life. And I know this church is going through a trial right now. You've been without a pastor for 18 months. That's significant. So I want to acknowledge that as I stand here before you today. The heart that we see here, even though you don't have a pastor right now, if you have this kind of heart that gives you stability in the midst of a trial. So, as we go through the text, I also want to draw your attention to a couple of things. Number one, the text will talk a lot about our inner man, and I'll draw your attention to that. So, that's where we get this concept of the heart. And then, what is the essence of our hearts our delights and our desires. So those are the two concepts I'm going to draw your attention to over and over. Psalm 16 says this, Preserve me, O God, I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good beside you. Say the word delights. Say the word delights. Okay, thank you for that. I have no good beside you. In verse 2, our translations typically translate this as I just read. I said to the Lord. And they usually translate it that for smooth, like that for the smoothness of our understanding. However, the verb is actually in the second person feminine. You say, Brent, what does that mean? The psalmist is, is talking to his soul. He's saying this, soul you say, Lord, you are my Lord, and there is no good beside you. He's doing self-counsel here. This is not a prayer, although it seems like it is. It's not in the first person, I said to the Lord. 
He's saying, soul, say to yourself, the Lord is my greatest good. So say inner man, say inner man. This is happening in his inner man. Verse 3, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic one in whom is all my delight. Say delights, delights. The sorrows of those who have bartered for or literally run after another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. I will talk about that phrase a little bit later. Verse 5. The Lord is my portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Say delights. Delights. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Again, say delights. Delights. The psalmist is using a metaphor here related to being assigned a particular inheritance. Okay, the portion. Very simply, Israel's origins consisted of being wandering nomads with flocks as their livelihood. A wandering nomad with flocks is always in need of a particular piece of land to feed the flocks and cultivate agriculture for land to build upon it. So land, an inherited piece of property, means life. If you're a wandering nomad and you don't have property for your, your, your flocks, you're always like a parasite on somebody else. And you're always in the danger of losing your life, your sustenance. Thus, in the metaphor of inherited land here, notice what the psalmist is saying. The Lord is my life. He is my portion. He is my inheritance, not the land. The Lord is my life. Verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, in the night, my mind, say inner man, say inner man. My mind instructs me. Now, the word for mind here is literally kidneys. Imagine that. Those of you who are older know that our kidneys instructing us in the night doesn't mean what this psalm means, right? <laughs> you understand that. When he is saying the Hebrews did not have a word for mind. So when they say kidneys, they're talking about the innermost secret parts of you. So the use of kidneys here is referring to that inner. And when he says, my kidneys instruct me in the night, he's not referring to going to the bathroom. He's referring to his inner man, his heart. Right? And what comes out of his heart, it instructs him in the dark times, the night. And he said earlier, the Lord is his good in his heart. So it's the Lord who instructs him in the night. Verse 8, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. The right hand is the place of strength and power. And because the Lord is the psalmist's strength and power, he will not be shaken. Verse 9, therefore my heart, okay, say inner man, say inner man, is glad and my glory or the weightiness of my substance rejoices. Say delights, delights. And then he goes, so his inner man is secure. And notice what he says, surely my flesh or my life, my flesh will dwell securely. My outer man is secure also. 
and somehow, in some way, my outer man, he has this unshakable confidence. Look at verse 10. My outer man, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. He has this unshakable trust about him. Somehow, it even allows him to say, I'm going to overcome death someday. Look at verse 11. And the reason he has this unshakable confidence, you will show to me the path of life, not death. And in your presence, literally right there, and this is one of the readings that we just read here on the screen, literally that is before your face. Before your face is the fullness of joy. Okay? In other places of Scripture, we see that God's, God's saying that nobody can see his face and live, but the psalmist is somehow, in some ways, expecting to see the face of God. And then he's going to have the fullness of joy then. How is that possible? And we'll get to that in just a moment by the end of our time together today. Right now, we're talking about the transformed heart, and in the psalmist's song to God, we see four features Four features about the psalmist's heart and our heart that we must understand for our hearts to be transformed. We'll see the heart's description. We'll see the heart's problem. We'll see the heart's ideal. And then we'll see the beautiful solution to our hearts. Let's start with the first one, the heart's description. Here is the heart's description. Your heart is the place of your desires and your delights that govern everything about you. Okay. What is this ideal of the heart of man? First, the heart is the inner man, the immaterial part of you. Okay. I said the kidneys there. The, the literal word for mind is the kidneys, which was metaphoric for the innermost secret part of you. In verse 7, indeed, in the night, my innermost part instructs me. In verse 9, the psalmist calls the inner man the heart. He's not talking about two different things. Okay? In Psalm 26, 2, you'll see actually these two words together, kidneys and hearts. In Psalm 26, 2, examine me, O Lord, test me, try my kidneys. <laughs> and again, if you're older, you test my kidneys. That's what I want all the time. But that's not what that means. Test my inner man and my heart. Those two words mean the inner man. Furthermore, what else do we learn about the heart from this psalm? We learn that the heart is where your greatest delights and treasures are. Verse 2, I have no good besides you. Verse 3, um, talking about God's people, they are the majestic one in whom is all my delights. Verse 6, in pleasant places, it is beautiful to me. Jesus Christ said, in the moment I say this, you'll recognize it Matthew chapter 6, verse 21 says, For where your treasure is, what, can you finish it? Where your treasure is, what? There is your heart. Let me, let me tell you what that means. Look for what a person values. Okay? Earthly security, the praise of man, video games, entertainments, sex. Look for what a person values. Look for what a person loves the most. And notice you'll determine that when he doesn't get it, if he responds in anger or frustration or anxiety. Look for what a person delights in. Look for what a person chases. 
Look for what a person lives for. And if you found that, you found the person's treasure and you found his heart, that is the essence of who you are. You found his heart. And finally, the last aspect that we learn about the heart is this. The heart is a source of all of your life, our thinking, our behaving, and our emotions. In our passage, we see the heart's informing the psalmist thinking. Indeed, my mind instructs me. There's his thinking. It informs his behaving. I shall not pour out their drink offerings, whatever that means. And again, I'll talk to you about that in just a moment. The heart informs or ushers in his emotions. My heart is glad. That is why Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your hearts with all diligence, for flow it, for from it flow the springs of life. All of life and its issues come from the hearts. Here's the bottom line. We do what we do. We think what we think and we feel what we feel because we love something in our hearts. We are delighting in something. We are treasuring something. You know, there is no concept like this in the world. As far as psychology or psychiatry, they don't deal with the innermost part of you because they can't. They don't know that you have a soul. All you are is biology and chemicals to them. So if you start with God, he says there's an immaterial part of you that is driven You are driven by what you love the most in life, always, always, always. However, the world would say you do what you do and you are what you are because what others have done to me, something external. You do what you do because of your past. You do what you do because of the brain chemicals that are firing right now. You do what you do because of your environment or your upbringing. But the Bible, with its view of man, says all issues come from your own heart and what it treasures. So let me give you one question here to consider if you really believe in this concept. Do you really believe this? If you do, if I do what I do because what I want what I want, then do I take responsibility for my actions? Okay? If all of your behavior comes from your own heart and what you want in your heart, you, do you take responsibility for what you treasure? Let, let me give you some examples. So in your behavior, if you gossip, do you know what you're treasuring? You're treasuring superiority over somebody else or revenge. They hurt me. I'm going to gossip about them. Here's... Here's why you're doing what you're doing, because you're treasuring your superiority to somebody else. If your behavior is engaged in pornography, your heart is treasuring sexual pleasure outside of God's plan. If your actions demonstrate impatience, what you treasure more than anything else is your own convenience. If your emotional state is one of despair, here's what I know. You're treasuring something. You're treasuring something on this earth that you don't have or perceive that you don't have. Therefore, you are despairing. So you're treasuring something. I mean, that could even be something good like a pastor that you would long for. But you haven't had one for 18 months as far as a senior pastor. 
And if I end up in despair over that, I'm treasuring the wrong thing. That's the heart's description. Now let's look at for a moment the heart's problem. Number two. Here's the heart's problem. Your heart is in decline. Your heart is inclined to run after other pleasures other than God. We sang about, Lord, you're our only delight. Here's the root problem. Our heart's problem is that we are inclined to run after other gods or pleasures which multiply our sorrows. The psalmist says this in verse 4. The sorrows of those who have literally there says run after another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Remember the psalmist had said, Lord, you are my only good. And now he says those who have run after another God or what they believe to be good, okay, that other goodness is going to be equated with a God. When there is something ultimate that you believe is more good than God, you know what that is? That is idolatry. This concerns our worship, another God. The psalmist says, I will not go after another God. The very first commandment. What is the very first commandment out of the Ten Commandments? Very first commandment out of the Ten. What is it? You shall have no other God before me. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus Christ summarized. The greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God, the delight of your hearts. What do you practically believe is more good for you than God alone? Again, these can even be good things. I just want a godly spouse. I just want obedient children. Who doesn't? (laughs) I just want a high-paying job. I just want a senior pastor. Good things. But when they become ultimate things... They become idolatrous. And if these desires become our primary desire, they will be our pursuit in life, meaning we run after. And that's where this whole drink offerings or taking their names on my lips, that's metaphorical terms. And let me explain what those mean. Now, let me illustrate. So when you want to get to know somebody, for example, if you really wanted to get to know me today, what would you do with me today? If you really, so not run me out of town, okay? If you really wanted to get to know me because you liked something about me today, what would you do with me after church today? Okay, you'd go to lunch, okay? So if I really want to know you, I would take you out to lunch and fellowship with you. And I would call you by name, John, or you would call me by name, Brent, right? So in the Old Testament, the drink offering was symbolic of something. So they had a drink offering in the temple. So along with your sacrifice that you would bring, and some of the sacrifices you got to eat a part of. So some were whole burnt offerings that all of them went up to God, but some, some you gave some to the priest and you got some of the T-bone steak yourself from your cow. But you would also bring a drink offering. And the symbolism there is that I have fellowship with God. I'm drinking with God. I'm all restored to God. Notice the psalmist is saying this, I will not pursue fellowship, a drink offering, with another God. Okay? I will not even say the name of another God on my lips. 
reason why we needed a savior is because our problem is we have good relationships and know the names of many other gods. In pornography, we call upon the God of illicit sexual pleasure by name. We have him on speed dial. And we have dinner with him all the time. In our Western culture, we call upon the God of entertainment and we spend hours with that God. In wealthy America, we call upon the God of possessions and have an intimate relationship with his toys all the time. And in our relationships, we call upon the God of popularity. I just want to be better. I want somebody that I can secure relationship with. We know that God well as well. Now, here are some questions written by a man that is deceased now, David Pallison, that help us to begin to sift through what's going on in your heart. Okay, so I'm just going to read through these, um, grab one or two here, but they're called x-ray questions. Like, What do you love most in life? That's another God you're running after. What do you desire most in life? Where do you find your hope and security on earthly pleasures and treasures? What do you fear and worry about? What do you think you need the most? Or what do you spend most of your energies trying to obtain? What does your world revolve around? What angers or distresses or depresses or worries you the most? Worriers, and I'm, I'm, I'm a worrier. I tend to be a worrier. Worry means there's something out there that I think I should have that I don't, and I'm worried about how to get it. Guess what? I'm an idolater. I'm chasing that thing, and, and I'm chasing that other God. Whose performance matters the most? Whom must you please? How do you define success? And what person's acceptance, possession, or achievement makes you somebody? Do you remember... Um, 1976, there's a movie called Rocky that came out. Does anybody remember Rocky? Yeah, you remember Rocky? Okay, he had to go the distance with um, Apollo Creed. And why did he have to go the distance? Here's what he said to Adrian. I have to go to the distance. I don't care if I win or lose. I just want to be standing at the bell because I can prove to everybody I'm not a bum. Okay, so he was living for acceptance. Um, I don't know, question number 13 is up there, but um, question number 13, what if it were, imagine something, and if it were taken away from you, would it devastate you? If there is something like that, possibly you're chasing after another God. Okay. Remember Madonna? Madonna, one of the greatest provocative performers and entertainers, you know, in the 1980s and the 1990s, here's what Madonna said in a Vanity Fair article. Um, when she gets up and performs, she recognizes after she does her extravagant things that she is somebody. So she's finally arrived. She's finally made it. And the next day, she wakes up and she realizes she's only mediocre again. And she says, I guess I'm, I will have to do this all the time. She's on a perpetual treadmill. And she said, I guess my struggle will never end. Whose performance matters the most? For her, all of us. Her trying to demonstrate that she is somebody. And chasing after other gods rather than the greatest God in his good. Always, always, always. Say always. Say always. Always results in the multiplication of sorrow. Multiplication of sorrow. Another God will never satisfy the hearts of man. 
give you another example. Multiplying sorrows, you know, the deceased comedian Robin Williams. So he, um, he was one of the most comedic geniuses of our time. And uh, he has such a quick wit. And um, remember how he died? Anybody remember how he died? It was suicide. Okay, so, but later it was determined that he did have a degenerative brain disease. Now, if you were living for the praise of man and you had such a comedic genius about you that you take any scenario and you can make it funny. And if you were living for that and then all of a sudden you got a disease, you didn't even know about it, but then your brain was not as sharp as it used to be. But you were living and you cannot make those connections and you cannot be that quick anymore. If you were living for that, what would it result in when it was taken away? Despair. I can't prove to you that's why he committed suicide. But that is the nature of how this goes. Living for other gods cannot satisfy. They only multiply sorrows. Your heart doesn't have to be this way. We have seen the heart's description, we have seen the heart's problem, and now for a transformed heart, we need to see the heart's ideal. Your heart can be stable in a world where nothing else is, even even here, without a pastor. So if you look at this psalmist's heart, I mean, how would you describe the heart here? His demeanor, it's unshaken. So his demeanor, it's content. He's not constantly striving. He's not Madonna on the treadmill. He says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. It's beautiful. In some way, he's content. He is resting and not running. In the nights, my flesh dwells securely. He is confident. He is not shaking. One of the most fascinating concepts in this passage is the psalmist's confidence that somehow, even in His flesh, his physical body, will be preserved somehow. In the greatest night of the soul, you know, my mind instructs me in the nights, in the greatest darkness of the soul, the greatest darkness, death, the psalmist has some kind of a confidence here. He says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. How is that possible? How is a heart with this level of unshakableness even possible? I'm going to answer that question in just a moment. Okay. But even in the face of possible death, the psalmist is joyful and not despairing. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Friends, isn't this the kind of heart that we need, that we want? So when we are in this troubled world with its groanings, this side of heaven, that our heart can be stable, a content, rusting, confident, joyful heart, that even in the face of death, we can have a heart like this. Let's end with this. The fourth feature of the heart that we need to have a transformed heart is this, the heart solution. Your heart, excuse me, <coughs> your heart can only be satisfied with a new and a greater delight, God. And that's what will give you the stable hearts. Let me remind you again of where we started. What was it? What were, was it that rescued Jack Kelly from, le- from leaving New York City? 
Um, and his longed-for delight in Santa Fe, what was it that rescued him? Do you remember? What was it? It was a girl. And it was the expulsive power of a greater delight. His delight in the lady that helped rescue him from the oppressive conditions that he was in. Okay? But Newsy's example there. Thomas Chalmers says this, such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have something to lay to hold of and which, if wrestled away without the substitution of another something in its place, would leave a void and vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. The heart must have something to cling to. Okay? So Santa Fe was gone, but a girl came instead. So friends, what will now rescue you from running after the earthly pleasures and treasures that only multiply sorrows and they cannot satisfy you? Here's what Thomas Chalmers goes on to say. Thomas Chalmers was a Puritan, by the way, and, and you can find, if you type in Google, the expulsive power of a new affection, you can find his big old treatise here. But here's what he says. The love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness. But may it not, may not your desires be changed and be supplanted by the love of that which is even more lovely than itself. For Jack Kelly, it was the love of a girl, not the inanimate object Santa Fe. The only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. A greater delight that comes in and supplants your other desires. That is the expulsive power of a new affection. What is the greatest delight in the psalmist here, in the psalmist's heart here? What is the greatest delight in the psalmist's heart? What would you say? What do you see the psalmist going back to over and over again? What do you see? Is God. God is my good. I say there is no good but you. He is my life. He is my counsel. He is my gaze. He is my strength, my power, my victory. He is my longing. You see it in the Psalms there. The reason why he says, I will not go after any other gods that multiply sorrows is because he sees that God doesn't multiply sorrows. God is his joy. The greatest delight of the psalmist's heart here is the Lord. No other God delights and no other delight satisfies. Our hearts were created to be satisfied in God alone and that is what is happening with this psalmist. Let me push this one more step further in the time that I have left, which is not much, I understand that. So here's a question for you. Why is it that the psalmist had confidence that God would not abandon his soul even in death? Okay. Logically, why, why is it that the psalmist had confidence that God would not abandon his soul? Here's the answer. Because the psalmist's delight is the Lord who is his life. If God is my life, is death an obstacle? Say no. Say no. No. Okay. No other God is life. 
Madonna's pursuit of fame put her on a constant treadmill that's taken her to the grave. Robin Williams' pursuit of the praise of man ended his life. So the psalmist believes somehow that even he will overcome death. But let's push this a little further still. The scriptures repeatedly say that no one can see the face of God and live. That's in Exodus 33.20. When Moses says, show me your face. And God says, I can't show you my face. You can see like the, the tail of my robe. How is it this psalmist has confidence that he will be able to bring to be in the presence of God, beholding his face where there will be fullness of joy? Somehow he has this confidence. Because the psalmist believes that God will provide a way. He says it. You will make known to me the path of life. And friends, okay, so we don't have the full answer here in Psalm 16. But as the scripture progresses, you will make known to me the path of life. What is that path? To the face of God in which there are delights forevermore. God sent us his face. Did you hear me? God sent us his face that we could look upon it. In Colossians 1.15, describing Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. And that face, Christ's face, was the one who had always and forever been in the presence of his father, beholding his father's face. But at one point, that individual was willing to forego his greatest heart's treasure. We've been talking about what our hearts treasure. But that individual, at one point in time, who had his greatest heart's treasure, he was willing to forego his greatest heart's treasure, his greatest heart's delight, beholding his father's face. He had only and ever delighted in God his father, but his father turned his face away from him. His heart never chased after another God. But this man's sorrows were multiplied. <laughs> How will God make known to this psalmist and to you the path of life? We now behold Jesus' face. The face of the one who forfeited the fullness of joy before the face of his father and took upon all of your multiplied sorrows for chasing after all of the gods that we chase after. And why did he do that? He did that. Jesus Christ did that on the cross when the father's face turned away from the son. Okay? He did that because he loved you. So how do I see now that God is better than any other delight out there? Okay. Now you have a vivid reality in front of you. Stare at, meditate on, study the scriptures before you to behold the face of God in Christ and you will see his love. When I see all of his love in the fullness of his glory, it expels my love of any other God. No other God loves you like this one. Your possessions don't. They didn't die for you. Your entertainment will not return that affection. Okay. I want you to recognize also there is no other religion 
There is no other religion, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, that has a God that gave his life for you. No other system, secular or religion, psychology, psychiatry, science, that has a God who loves you and gave himself for you. Thus, when you truly see this God, the God of the Bible, and you behold his face in the face of Christ, will that not be the greater affection that expels every other God in your hearts? You delight only in him, the one who loved you. Believer, how will your heart continually be transformed? Here it is. The place of the heart in your growth is for you to continue to behold the beauty of Jesus, to become more and more captivated by him, which will result in your thinking and your behaving and your emotions changing, and you can have a heart like his. Now, ultimately, Psalm 16, we look at that pure heart there. We know that was not ultimately David's heart. We know that. David's bones are still in the grave. So the heart ultimately described there in Psalm 16, that was Jesus' heart, the only one who had a pure heart. That was his. And on the cross, he took, he he was a man of sorrows that was multiplied, that we deserved. And when I see, when I see him and his love, that cast out my love for all the earthly pleasures and treasures, Finally, Christians overcome the world. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, and that's Christ. Do you see him, not just for your salvation this morning, but for your daily living that motivates all of your behavior? May God help us in that. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you, and we thank you for the example of the pure heart in Psalm 16. Father, we acknowledge that this ultimately was our Savior's heart. And he was the one who never ran after any other gods. He didn't deserve to have his sorrows multiply, but they were because of our impure hearts. Thank you for that. And Father, for everyone here today who's struggling maybe with the loss of earthly pleasures and treasures or loved ones, and I'm not having a senior pastor, will you help us to fix our hearts on the greatest delight, which is not having a senior pastor or not having our loved ones around? Will you help us to fix our hearts on the one who loved us and gave his life for us to give us that stable heart in the midst of unstable times? We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.